welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. What's the best time to write your first draft? Should you work late at night or should you get up early in the morning? And when should you attend to tasks like research and managing your email and so on? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and I recently read the book When The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink is a New York Times bestselling author who's also written and published books like To Sell is Human and Drive. And I recently had the opportunity to speak to Daniel. I asked him about his process for coming up with nonfiction books like When and To Sell is Human, both of which are packed full of scientific research as well as anecdotes and other types of stories. One of the key ideas in Daniel's book, When, is the idea of a lark and a night owl. And this is something that really resonated with me. Basically, a night owl is somebody who likes to work late in the evenings or late at night. Perhaps they've spent all day at a job and then when they get home, they might like to you know, work on a book or work on the manuscript until midnight or one in the morning. And that's certainly the way I used to approach writing. That's the way I used to approach writing before my wife had kids. Then I changed how I worked gradually over the course of a year or two. And now I typically get up early in the morning to work on a difficult first draft and so on. And I'll spend the later part of the day, you know, attending to administrative tasks. So I started my interview by asking Daniel, is it normal to make this kind of transition from being a night owl to being a lark? Or is there something wrong with me? So Dan, my, my first question is about being an owl versus a lark. A couple of years ago, I used to like to you know, work at night, whether it be on you know, business projects or writing. And these days, perhaps because I have some small kids, I've kind of turned yeah. into a lark and I now get up really early to work on my main thing for the day. Is that normal or is it, is it just me? Uh, it depends. It's a great question. You, you know, what we know is that people have different chronotypes, which means really just your propensity to do you wake up early and go to sleep early? Do you wake up late and go to sleep late? And we know in the broad population, about 15% of us are very strong larks. About 20% of us are very strong owls. And about two thirds of us are somewhere in the middle. And that can change over time. So in general, people have this period of intense owliness. We become owlier than ever in our lives during a period between about the mid-teens and the mid-20s. So it could just be it could just be aging or it could be that you're an owl with little kids. Yeah, yeah, probably that I'm an owl with little <laughs> kids. So and well, like what about you? When do you and find little it? and little kids are very, very large. That period between, say, toddlerhood and the early teens is a very, very large period. Well, that's good to know. I have a a 13-year-old son, so I'll tell him that. Well, what about you? When do you find is your best time for focusing perhaps on writing a chapter for one of your books versus... Uh, what I, I come out as, you know, when I measure my chronotype, which are all kinds of methods for, for doing that, I come out as a, in the middle, what I call a third bird, but leaning a little bit toward the larky side. So for me, that's where I am. So if you think about it as a, you think about it as a spectrum of extreme lark at one and extreme owl at 10, I'm about a four, four and a half. And what that means is that in general, about 80% of us, that is everybody who's not an owl, tends to move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, peak early, trough in the middle, in the early to mid afternoon, recovery later in the day. So for me, 
my peak, which means the time that I am most vigilant, the time that I am least distractible, the time that I am most focused is to be in the morning. So when I'm writing books or anything of any length, I sequester the morning and work only on that and then do my other work other times a day. And how long does that state for you last for when you're in, in a peak state, so to speak? Uh, not that long, <laughs> unfortunately. Here's what we know. There's some general patterns and then a lot of idiosyncrasies. So again, the general pattern is peak trough recovery for 80% of us. Now, owls are different. Owls tend to hit their peak much later in the day, late afternoon, early evening, well into the evening. So for me, I would say that my peak, and again, when I say peak, what I mean is at the time that I'm most vigilant, the time that it's hard to distract me, the time when I can maintain some decent focus. For me, that's generally between about 8.30 in the morning and 12.30 or noon, somewhere around there. So, that's so it's, a, it's, it's, not that, it's not that much time. It's a, you know, call it three, three and a half hours of really, really good time, which is why it's so important to use that time effectively, to take that time that is my best time and not spend it answering email, not spend it wasting you know, brain cells on Twitter. And instead, move my administrative work, that is, think about answering emails or expense reports or whatever, move that type of work to the trough period, the early to mid-afternoon, because that's when I'm least effective, so I should do the least important stuff there. Now, what's interesting is that that recovery period, again, for most of us late in the afternoon, early in the evening, that's a very valuable period, but it's a different kind of thinking. During that period, our mood goes back up, but we're less vigilant. And that ends up being a very powerful combination for things that require some degree of mental looseness, flexibility, disinhibition, things like brainstorming, things like iterating new ideas. So for me, again, I try to do my heads down work early in the day, my administrative work in the middle of the day, and then my more iterative freewheeling work later in the day. And what's important about all of this at a big level is that what this research shows, this research on timing and performance, what it shows is that our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of the day. That's a really important insight. Our brain power doesn't remain the same throughout the day. It changes. It changes in material ways and it changes in somewhat predictable ways. And so if you actually honor that, you can begin to do the right work at the right time of day and get, you know, in this really just feel better and get more and better work done. Yeah. I mean, I've tried to spend early mornings writing and, you know, the afternoons on email and so on. In the book, you also talk about napping. You describe how you're, you know, you, you've changed your opinion on napping over the years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a lot of research on naps. And again, you know, this book, When, is rooted in this incredible amount of research across many disciplines on questions of timing, on when we do things, on how beginnings affect us, how midpoints affect us, how endings affect us. And there ends up being a big pile of research on naps. And the key to it all is that naps are pretty good for us. They really are. That naps are a form of taking a break, that they can restore mental energy, they can restore mental acuity, they can restore you know, a sense of well-being. But the most effective naps are extraordinarily short. They're between 10 and 20 minutes long. When you nap longer than that, you begin to develop what's called sleep inertia, 
which is that groggy, fuzzy-headed feeling you sometimes get when you wake up from a nap that's, that's too long. So naps are very effective. It's a, they're an effective form of break, but the most effective by far are these exceptionally short naps. A lot of the ideas in your books struck me as a reason why people should have self-knowledge about how they're spending their time. Mm. And I'm just wondering, do, do you recommend people you know, track themselves with a, a wearable or perhaps in a spreadsheet or even with an app like Rescue Time? Or is there another way to do it? I do recommend that. I do that myself. I myself use Rescue Time and I'm always horrified because I like to think that I know what I'm doing. But then I find myself, then I, then I look at Rescue Time and realize how much time I've frittered away. Uh, so I, I think I do recommend those kinds of things. I think a lot of times we get caught up in these apps and whatnot. There's, there are very simple analog ways to do that too. Just like write down what you do uh, every hour over the course of a week and to just and look at it. You will see patterns there. But I, I think the starting point of your question, Brian, is, is in some ways even more important, which is you use the hyphenated word self-knowledge. That is key. And I have found is that many of us are not very good observers of our own behavior. And that's really key. And, and one of the things that merely thinking about timing and thinking about the effect of time on our lives can do is that it makes us more aware of what we're doing ourselves. And so you can ask the question, a question that I hadn't really asked myself before doing this research, which is, okay, at what time of day am I most creative? At what time of day am I most mentally acute? How do I feel at two o'clock in the afternoon? Why is that different from the way I feel at 9.30 in the morning? And so just being aware of our, how we feel and how we're performing, whether it's by recording it in an analog way, whether it's by using things like rescue time, which again, I, as I said, I'm a big fan of rescue time. I get a rescue time report every week. That kind of self-knowledge is a really, really important starting point for doing better. You also talk in the book about a fresh start. And we're recording this interview, I suppose, at a key time for a fresh start, which is the new year. So how can people who are perhaps struggling with a, you know, a bad work habit or something else that they want to stop doing, embrace a fresh start? Yeah, the fresh start effect is a principle discovered by three researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, Katie Milkman, Jason Reese, and Heng Chen Dai. And what they found is that certain dates are what social psychologists call temporal landmarks, temporal landmarks. And what that means is that certain dates stand out in time the way that physical landmarks stand out in space. And so when you're moving through a physical setting and you see a landmark, it has a certain effect. And one of the effects that it has is that it's, it's navigational. It's, it helps you orient yourself. It's navigational. You have a sense of where you are. You slow down. And certain dates do that same thing with that added kick. So certain dates get us to slow down, assess, have a sense of, of, of where we are. But they also seem to trigger this weird form of mental accounting where we relegate our... We, it's like having a business and you open up a fresh ledger on yourself. You know, business at the beginning of a quarter. If you think about a ledger in the physical sense, you know, in the old fashioned days when they're writing down what they sell and what they, you know, how much goes in and how much goes out. They'll open up a fresh ledger on, at the beginning of a quarter. People do that on themselves on fresh start dates. So, so, so New Year's is again the, the great example of that. So 2018 me was a complete slob, never exercised, ate like crap. But fresh ledger, fresh start on January 1, 2019, new me is going to be 
going to go to the gym every day and is going to eat more vegetables and yada, 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 yada. Now, what's interesting about this is that New Year's Day, while the most prominent fresh start date, is not the only one. And so what you see is you have people are more willing to start new behaviors and therefore have a fighting chance of continuing those new behaviors if they start them on a fresh start date, which means that, let's say you're more likely to start a diet, say, on a Monday rather than on a Thursday. And again, if you start something, you're more, you have a fighting chance of actually doing it. So if you want to change your behavior, start it on a Monday rather than on a Thursday, on the first of the month rather than the 13th of the month, on the day after your wedding anniversary rather than three days before your wedding anniversary. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you could start a writing habit as opposed to on a Monday or at the start of the month. You also talk about it in a book when you're working on a difficult project and you're at the midpoint and your motivation is lagging and you should imagine that you're behind and how that will motivate you to, to push on. Right. Yeah. Again, this goes back to your earlier question, Brian, about self-knowledge. A very, very important aspect of timing is goes beyond simply what we do at a certain time of day or whether we take a break. But that it involves the more episodic nature of our lives. How do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? And beginnings like a new year, beginnings are usually visible to us, but midpoints are often invisible, but they have this effect. They sometimes can bring us down, other times can fire us up. So one thing would be to make them visible and again, be, have that self-knowledge to say, I'm at the midpoint of this project. And what some really interesting research shows is that being slightly behind at the midpoint can be very motivating. There's some research in professional basketball on the scores at halftime. There's some interesting experimental research. We we put people in settings playing against an opponent and then give them a score at the halfway mark of the game. And what, what they find is that at the halfway mark of a contest, if you're way ahead, you get complacent in the second half. If you're way behind, you give up in the second half. But if you are a little bit behind at halftime, you really, really improve your performance in the second half. And it's always good to end on a high. You, you talk about it in the book as well, about how if you're on holidays, for example, try and tailor or a memorable experience for the last day or the last night. This is, again, this is the principle of endings, which is endings, again, part of this episodic nature of our lives. Endings have a strong effect on us, uh, multiple effects on us often at a very deep level. And one of the things that endings do is that endings help us encode. So what happens at the end of, of an encounter, an experience, anything, has a disproportionate effect on how we evaluate the experience and how we encode the experience, uh, how we remember the experience. And so whether it's a, like a customer transaction, whether it's a family vacation, whether it is a gathering you have of friends how that encounter ends is going to have a huge weight on how people will encode it. And so being much more intentional and deliberate about the ending and improve the quality of overall experience. And so it's, it's, you know, it's analogous in some ways to the idea that our cognitive ability doesn't stay the same throughout the day. Through any kind of experience or episode, we don't wait, W-E-I-G-H-T, we don't wait the moments of that experience equally, that things that happen at the end have a disproportionate impact. So we should be paying more attention to those. And, you know, in, in my view, in, in our businesses especially, more intentionally and deliberately craft those kinds of endings. And you also talk about how at the, even at the end of a working day, you should take a few minutes to plan out the following day and then to 
I suppose, close the door on the day that you've just finished and how that can help you, you know, energize you for tomorrow. Yeah, for that, one of the things that I like to do at the end of A, and there's some good research behind this, is, and, I, and I've been doing this now for years, some very, very good research on this. A lot of it comes from Teresa Mabile at Harvard Business School, showing that the single biggest day-to-day motivator on the job is making progress. And the trouble is, is that we often don't know when we're making progress. So taking literally two or three minutes to record, memorialize, okay, what did you get done today? How did you advance things today? It can be really powerful. So I have been doing this, I mean, literally, Brian, for, for several years now, where I will take a moment at the very end of the day and basically write down, or not, not, not physically write down, but computer, write down, what did I get done today? And if you take that moment to reflect on that, you realize, hey, wait a second, I actually did get something done. And if you didn't get, you know, if you feel like you didn't get something done, you know, I find that frustrating enough that the next day I want to do a little better. Yeah, that's a good practice. That makes sense. You also talked a lot there about the research that's gone into your book. And that's, that's something I was struck by, the level of research. How does your research process work for a book like When or Born to Sell or Drive? It varies from book to book. This research on When, the amount of research that was out there was enormous. And what's more, it was spread across many, many fields. So there's research on timing in social psychology and economics, but there's also research in molecular biology and anesthesiology and cognitive science. There's a whole field called chronobiology. And so for this book, I had to actually bring in some research help, really just to go out and find these hundreds and hundreds of studies, and then to begin to sort them and, and organize them. And so I'm a pretty slow worker. So what I will do is with the help of some very talented folks who are finding, you know, they can help me find all the stuff and then sort it. And then what I will do is I will read through these things and then say, oh, oh, let's follow up here, here, and here. Can you go find that? Then when I actually get further down the funnel and figure out, okay, this is a really great, this study is really solid. Uh, it's been replicated. Uh, the methodology is good. The findings are meaningful. You know, I'll go back and you know, I'll read it again and just to make sure yeah, I have it right. In many cases, I will interview the author of the study and talk to her or him to see you know, to make sure that I got it right. So it's, it's a very labor-intensive, laborious, time-consuming process. I recall listening to an interview you did with Tim Ferriss where you describe how you will work on an idea for a book um, for days or even weeks, but then you might walk away from it if you feel like it's not working. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to writing a book, and the reason for that is the different levels of things. So, so the amount of time and effort and blood, sweat and tears I would put into an article is obviously smaller than the amount that I would put into, into a book. So therefore, the bar is higher for writing a book. And because writing a book is really, you know, this is what I do for a living. And it's really hard. I don't think it's easy for anybody. It's a giant pain in the ass writing a book. And it's just, it's really time consuming. It's, it's really hard during a lot of it. Most of it is just not that fun. And so you have to pick a topic that you're really enamored by. You have to pick a topic that you really deeply care about, that you're willing to live with literally for years. And that's a very high bar. And so what I've done is I've gotten to the point where, hey, that's a pretty interesting idea. Let me start writing a proposal about a book on that. And in writing that proposal, I can say, I might real... And it's happened to me you know, three or four times in the last 15 years. Writing the proposal, I discover, wait a second, this is not a book. 
it doesn't really hang together that much. It might be an article. It's kind of interesting, but it's not worth $25 US and 12 hours of somebody's time. Or I can say, this might be a book, but I don't want to write this book. I don't want to spend two years working on this and the rest of my life talking about it. And so there's a very, very high bar. And for me, I would rather have that more deliberative process and make the discovery that this book wasn't going to work or that I didn't want to write it. I'd rather figure that out then than commit to writing a book and get partway down the road and say, holy smokes, this is, this is miserable. And do you test your ideas as well, you know, in the form of articles and so on before you go further with them? That's a great question too. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It really depends. You know, so there there was, um, you know, my first book grew out of an article that I had written. Uh, Other times the books have come out of, I'll, I'll give you an example here. So I wrote a book called Drive about the science of motivation that looked at 50 years of behavioral science and said, "Woo, wait, a lot of these traditional motivators are far less effective than we think, especially these controlling contingent motivators. If you do this, then you get that. And so so I wrote that book and I started hearing from readers almost immediately saying, wow, that's really interesting. The research is compelling, but what about sales? We use sales commissions to motivate salespeople. Is that a mistake? And I had not written about sales in the book. And that took me down a path saying, well, that's a great question. Let me do that. I ended up putting some material on sales in the paperback edition of Drive. But then I became so interested in sales that I ended up writing a book on sales. So it's not really testing an idea. It's basically following up on things that spark questions from from other people. And then when when I do think about cracking a book, I will test it. I mean, test is too strong of a word. It's not that systematic. But I think some aspect of writing is social. So I'll say, hey, you know, people say, hey, what are you working on? Well, let me tell you what I'm thinking about. Here's a question that I'm thinking about answering. And people will say, oh, that's really boring. Or, wow, I have no interest in that. Or they'll say, wow, that's kind of cool. What about X, Y, or Z? So I test it in that very informal way. And are you always working on an idea for your current book or your next book? Or do you take a break in between projects? I am trying to work on that. And it's interesting you say that because at the moment, I'm, I'm kind of hitting the, huh, that's a fairly interesting idea. I'm not sure if I want to live with it the rest of my life problem. But again, I would rather take it a little longer to settle in on an idea than settle on an idea and then eight months from now being, oh my God, I've just made a terrible mistake. And finally, do you have a tip for focusing on a big project? It could be a book or perhaps it could be a work project. Or do you have something that helps you focus? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's focus. I think that there are certain practices and for, for writing. And I've, I've said this for years and years and years and years. And this is the important discovery for me. I, I think there's this notion of writing as, as this kind of exalted profession where it's, you know, it's very intellectual and you know, people are just thinking great thoughts all the time. And, and I think that's just nonsense. Writing is, in so many ways, akin to a blue-collar profession. And I've always likened it to bricklaying. And so what you do is you, for writing, and this is the advice that I give to everybody, is you just freaking show up, all right? You show up and you put a few, you lay a few bricks and mortar them together and you get a few bricks up and then you come back the next day and you put a few more bricks on and then you come back the next day and put a few more bricks on and then you come back the next day and realize that a couple of them are misaligned. So you kick those out and replace them. And then you put a few more bricks. If you just show up and do your work every day, and treat writing not as this exalted intellectual endeavor and treat it more like a blue-collar job where you have to get stuff done and just build the wall, build that structure brick by brick by brick every single day. 
that's the way to do it. That's how professionals do it. Yeah, that reminds me of something Stephen Pressfield says in The War of Art about the resistance. That, that was great. It was really nice to talk to you, Daniel. Where can people find I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of, of, of The War of Art and Stephen Pressfield. Oh, yeah. And I am, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a full devotee of that idea. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, Brian, because the resistance, which Pressfield talks about as this kind of mysterious force that keeps people from writing, actually there's a timing to it as well because we are able to bat away the resistance. We are able to confront and challenge and deny the resistance grip on us better at different times of day. So one way to beat the resistance is to do your work at the right time of day. Yeah, it's a book I like to reread uh, once a year. Uh, where can people find you or, or your book today, Daniel? You can go to my website, which is danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. There are videos and an email newsletter, everything for the low, low price of free. Great. Yeah, the pink casts are, are worth checking out for, for anybody who's listening. Hey, thanks. So th- thanks again. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.